0: Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moved upon the face of the waters. And here we're introduced into at least two members of the Godhead. We have God, it says, And then it also talks about this other being, the Spirit of God. Now things are going crazy. And I'm not sure even what's happening on my end. Oh, this is so much fun. There we go. All right. Now, many people when they when they think of the term Trinity, they think Godhead, because after all, many of you probably know the word Trinity is not used in the Bible at all. You won't find it anywhere. You can look all over the place. You won't find the word. There's no trinity. However, you will find the term Godhead. And Godhead is used three times in the Bible. There are three different scriptures. So if you want to write them down, we're not going to go to them, but you can look in Acts chapter 17, verse 29. You can look in Romans 1.20 and Colossians 2.9, and you'll see that those three verses talk about this idea of the Godhead. But just because a term is not used in the Bible doesn't mean that we throw it out and say, well, you want, the, you want this? Okay. You're going to handicap me, but we'll uh, we'll see what we can do. Just because a term is not used in the Bible does not mean that we throw it out. Can you think of any examples? I know I can think of one right off the top of my head. How about you? Can you think of one? Evangelism. Evangelism. Okay. What about, that's good. What about the term millennium? right? Bible never says millennium anywhere, and yet it talks about this concept of a thousand years. And so, the concept is clearly there, even though, um, even though it doesn't use a particular term or word. Did we manage to get this working? Awesome. So much better. It was unlinked. How these things get unlinked when they're linked, I do not know. Spiritual warfare. Yeah, so let's, let's move on. Um, we're going to go just a few verses down. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And here we see um, God speaking, and, and God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God is here, and it seems like God is here in some kind of collaborative committee, right? Because he's saying, let us do something. What is that something? He says, well, it'll make man in our image. So here you, you see a very pluralistic uh, view of God, God using plural terms to describe himself. Well, where else do we see this? We see this in Genesis 322. If you want to turn maybe a page or so in your Bible, you'll see in Genesis 322 it says in the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of who? One of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. The word for God here is Elohim in the Hebrew. This is a plural noun, and it's used more than 2,700 times in the Old Testament. So that means that the inspired authors, when they use that term, they chose to use it about 10 times more than the singular form of God in the Old Testament. Just pretty astounding. Also, we see in Deuteronomy something that you know, could throw a few people. It seems to be a little bit confusing. This is the Shema. The shema. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it because I've never had Hebrew. What the Shema, we'll call it Deuteronomy 6:4, says, "Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord." We look at that. Well, how how can that be? Here we clearly see a plural, plural noun used for God, and then the Bible says, "The Lord our God is one Lord." That seems a little bit confusing. It could be com- problematic for some. Well, that's think about that idea the bible though um when it uses the term one here this is the same term that's used when it describes adam and eve as being one so the union between a man and a woman now a man and a woman when they're considered to be one are they still two distinct individuals yes they are a very strong amen down here in the front which tells us you can have two distinct parties but you can also be one. Well, what does that mean then to be one? Does it mean, well, let's not speculate. Let's see how the Bible describes it. Let's go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we'll we'll see a, a view of what it can mean to be one. Genesis chapter eleven. We'll start with verse one here. It says, "And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech." So this is the chapter that um, is talking about the Tower of Babel, right? This is post the flood. Man has got together, and they've decided we have got to do something because we certainly do not want to be uh, experience a flood again. So let's put our heads together and figure out what we can do. Okay. And so when we get down to, let's see, verse 4, it says, And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make a name, that, lest we be scattered abroad from the face of the whole earth. Now here they were one. They have distinct, they have many distinct beings, but they have a singular goal. And that goal caused everybody to work together. They wanted to make sure that they would not be flooded again. They were, su- they were so successful and united in their approach that God said there was nothing that they couldn't accomplish if they set their mind to it. Genesis eleven seven though, says, Go to, this is God speaking, Let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And so God, even though uh, he's, he's seen these people, they've come together as one, and they have this united purpose, God also says, I have a united purpose. I'm going to present a united front, and we are going to go down and confound the language and stop this business of man not trusting God. Perhaps the clearest verse in the Old Testament on this concept of the Trinity, I believe, is in Isaiah 48. So if you turn in your Bible to Isaiah 48, we'll go to verses 16 and 17 is what we'll read. Isaiah 48. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says... Come you near to me, hear you this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. See, in verse 16, God the Son is speaking. He identifies the Father, who is the sovereign Lord, and his spirit as being the ones who sent him. Verse 17 goes on. It says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, which teaches you to profit, which leads you by the way that you should go. And so in verse 17, the Son is clearly spoken of as this Lord. And these verses identify three distinct persons who are God without denying the fact that they are only one, without denying the fact that there is only one God. Now, let's turn to Isaiah. The Old Testament, when you read through it, looking at it through this this glass of the Trinity or the Godhead, the Old Testament is, could we say, not not as intensely clear as the New Testament. There are many more what we would call allusions to the Trinity in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. So we're kind of building. We're looking at what the trinity looks like in the, the old testament and then when we get to the new testament i believe the bible makes it even more clear so isaiah chapter 6 1 through 8. here isaiah sees a picture of heaven he's awed by what he sees and he notes some angels um talking well they're 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 or you might say singing declaring isaiah chapter six one through eight and i believe it's verse four i'm not quite there myself so i'm gonna give me a second it says well oh there it is it was in verse three that's why i couldn't see and one cried to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And here we have a subtle allusion to the Trinity once again, when he says, holy, holy, holy. And then God asks this question, and he says, speaking to Isaiah, who will go for us once again? Who will go for us? All right, let's look at the Trinity in the New Testament. We've seen in Genesis that when God was creating, there was more than one. And John adds a little more clarity to that. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, or in the, the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And without Him, how much was made? Nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when we look at that verse and we we compare it with Genesis, and Genesis chapter 1 introduces God is a creator God. Who was that creator God according to John? It was Jesus, right? And then we have have also from Genesis chapter 1, we know that the Spirit was there. But John chapter 1 also says that uh, the Word was with God, which clearly shows us that in the beginning at the creation, there was that third person, right? There was God the Father, where there was God the Son, and there was God the Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it becomes even more clear as we see three distinct beings. It says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him if we continue, verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. I think it's clear from reading that the voice from heaven is not the son. Can we agree on that? And the voice from heaven is not the spirit. Can we agree on that? Yes, clearly there are three distinct beings of the Godhead in that verse, in those verses. We also see this in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is giving the disciples their commission. Matthew chapter 28, if you want to turn there. And we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of who? The Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Right? Very clear, right? There is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Holy Spirit. Doesn't get much more clear than that. Um. When I see this and I see them all being named, it kind of makes me think of just names in general. You know, if I have my friend Eddie, I say, hey, this is my friend Eddie over here. You know, he clearly has an identity, he has a name. I say, well, this is my friend John. You know, you would know, okay, John, he's that guy standing over there next to you. He's your friend John. You know, he has a name. And I say, this is my friend Chris. But I say, but he's, um, well, we're just not sure what he is right? But we've given Chris a name. It doesn't really make sense, right? I mean, it's a person. It has an identity. We've given, it, we've given this being a name. It's not just some ethereal thing that is just kind of out there, right? And so here we see the, all three being named in Scripture very distinctly, yet yeah, very separately. Whoops. Get myself in trouble here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here we see them all working on behalf of man. It says there are diversities of gifts, but the same what? The same spirit. A couple people are awake. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. At least one person is strongly awake. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same who? God who works in all all working on behalf of man. Three agencies together presenting a united front. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, we see this as well. I'm trying to use my Bible in hand instead of relying so much on the technology, but it is faster, admittedly. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Each member of the God has had a distinct and important role in God's plan of salvation for man. I think I also see this concept in what would be called the unholy trinity. Because I think for whatever God has, Satan has a counterfeit. I see it over and over again, right? And so Matthew 16, 13, it says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. And I look at that and I say, you know, hmm. It's interesting because the dragon works through the mother, church, not the father, right? It, the dragon uh, works through the daughter, churches, not the son. And the dragon also works through these, um, the false prophets, the, one, the ones that claim to have the spirit, but do not, right? Claim to have the workings of the spirit, but do not. So I don't know if that's too much of a stretch for you, but I, but I believe I see that there. The unholy trinity counterfeiting what God has in place. So now I want to give you something, which I hope will give you something to think about. Bear with me if you wonder where I'm going with this. We'll get there. Deuteronomy chapter 19 and 15. I'd like to go there. Deuteronomy Chapter 19 and verse 15 says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, for any sin, in any sin that he sins, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, or at the mouth of two or three witnesses, shall the matter be established. I was reading that. And I said, hmm, I wonder... In the condemnation of Lucifer could it be that God said I can condemn sin not simply because I'm God but but because I have established this in the mouth of two or three witnesses in other words God is is so just and so fair he's not just doing something arbitrarily he's saying I can do this because there are two others that agree with me that this is a violation of the law. And I think we see this in an even broader principle in John chapter eight. So I'm gonna read through you a little bit of John chapter eight. John chapter eight, and we're gonna start in verse 13. can tell I'm not used to this bible. John chapter 8 starting with verse 13 it says the pharisees therefore said to him you bear record of yourself and your record they said is not true. Jesus answered and said to them though i bear record of myself yet my record is true for i know from where i came and where i go but you cannot tell where i came from and where i go. You judge after the flesh, I judge no man, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men are true." So the testimony of two men establishes the truth. Jesus could bear record that there was at least one other which testified that he was true. Let's take this a step further. Let's say that could it be that to establish truth, you have to have at least one more? And God says, I'm not going to just say something is true because I say so. I'm saying something is true because there are others that will back me up on it. And I think about today's world and how many things have become true because I want them to be true or because I declare them to be true because because I said so or that's my worldview or whatever. But I look at this verse and I say, hmm, I wonder, could it be that maybe God is not a postmodern? Which brings me to another question. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Can you have the greatest amount of love without another to bestow it upon? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us a lot about love, it tells us it's patient. And it tells us it's kind. And I have no idea if this thing is ever going to catch up. It might. But I'm just going to read it. I think it's become unresponsive. Anyway, it tells us Make sure I'm in the right place. But charity, or love, does not vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemingly. It does not seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It does not think evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, right? Love does all these things and I'm wondering if you can just skip to the end of that for me. Love does all these things, and my question to you is, to whom? Right? To whom does love do all those things? Because you have to have someone to interact with in order for all those things to happen, right? Love is just not It's not just one person saying love is all these things and then there's no interaction. We need it. Can we skip to the end of this? No, we can't. I'm the only one that can control this. Unfortunately, at this moment. Let's see. Is almost painful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hopefully, today it does. Hopefully, today it does. Let me try something. Yeah? We got that? Got a connection? It's, um, it is stuck on love. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't love me. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to where I know I want to be. Let's go to John chapter 17, verse 24. That's where we want to go, because we're going to keep talking about love, even though we're not feeling the love. John chapter 17, verse 24 says this, Father... I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world what is it that the father and son were doing before the foundation of the world right they were loving each other this concept of love goes goes back further than us and the word here for love, just as in the previous verse, is agape love. You've probably heard that term before. Um, It's considered the highest form of love, at least as far as the Greek language goes, and it's the love that um, we would want to uh, strive for, right, as Christians. I see this love a few different places in the Bible, and, you know, I'm not going to be able to, to say it's, it's Greek because it's not, but if you go to Genesis chapter 22, when I was looking at this, I said, I wonder where love is first used in the Bible, So I went to, I found this verse in Genesis 22. In verse 2 it says, And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get you in the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you. The Bible tells us no greater love has a man than this, than he will lay down his life for his friends, right? That's the kind of love that Christ showed us. That's agape love. And so when I look at that and I look at this, I say, it's the same kind of love because of the lesson that God was trying to teach Abraham through this experience. And I find it very interesting. This is the first time I could find the word love in the Bible was this picture, this sacrificial love. the kind of love that God demonstrated for us. And so I thought, well, I wonder what it is if I looked up the last time that the word love was used in the Bible. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. Visuals are overrated anyway, right? You need word pictures. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb... And by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives to the death. Also agape love, right? Right here, agape love. It's about a people who will sacrifice their, their lives because they want to vindicate the God that they love. They want to show God the love that they have for him. And it's the kind of love that Jesus asks us to have toward each other. John 13, 35, our scripture reading, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, right? That you have love one towards another, right? The highest form of love toward another. In the early Christian church, an agape feast was a love feast. It was a communal meal that was held um, in connection with the Lord's Supper. It was a reminder to love. And as Jesus was uh, finishing up that first communion, you might say, as he was rounding out his address with his disciples, we reflect on that, not on the memory verse, but on the uh, scripture reading. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. I think about that in in conjunction with communion. That's what Jesus wanted to leave his disciples with this thought as they were partaking of the Lord's Supper. Love each other, right? Each communion, I think we should think about three things. Oh, we have visuals again. One, I think we should think about the great gift which was sent by the Father. I also think that we should think about the great sacrifice that was provided by the Son. And I think we should think of the great gift that is provided by the Spirit to share that love with the world. I'd like to leave you with this verse be as we are wrapping up here. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. So it's communion. And as we reflect on the Trinity, the Godhead, whatever you want to call it, I hope that you will look at that through the lens of love and realize that it was the work of all of heaven to pour this gift out for you.